Just a brief disclaimer, there's some slight violence this week. Check out mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the story of Tokoyo from Japanese folklore. You probably know not to give people at work unsolicited health tips, but that's doubly true if the person can send you into forced exile to a faraway island with a terrible secret. The creature this time has probably the least original name of any of the creatures we've covered. It's the skunk ape from southern Florida. It's an ape. That stinks. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, episode 73. I will find you. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. The story this week is from Japanese folklore. You really don't need any background. It has sort of an early modern feel that a lot of the Japanese stories we've told in this podcast have had. With no historical background and no real mythological elements, it's basically a fairy tale. So we'll jump right in with a woman floating in a frigid sea, headed toward a dangerous place, shrouded in mystery. Tokuyo huddled on the floor of the rocking boat. The fishermen were right. This was suicide. Trying to cross miles of frigid, choppy waters in one night will be difficult in their formidable boats, let alone her glorified bucket. The winds were too fierce for her to try to raise her head much above the prow, and she had given up trying to row in darkness. Tokoyo had no idea where she was going anyway, but her fate was sealed the moment she had left home. Now, out on the water, she knew that she had to find her father, or die trying. That had always been the plan. It had only been two years since Tokuyo's father, a high-ranking samurai, had said one misplaced comment to the perpetually ill emperor. Tokuyo remembered the day. Her father had been accompanied by men back to their house to gather his things. He would be relocating for work. Some might call it an early retirement. Others might call it a forced exile. You say potato, I say much, much worse poisonous potato. When Tokuyo figured out what was happening, she ran to her father, begging to know where they were taking him. He waited until the very last moment, until the carriage was speeding away, to yell one word. Oki. It stuck in Tokuyo's mind for weeks, but she was too afraid to ask anyone about it. She kept the house in her father's absence and prayed that she would see him again. When the weeks turned to months and she still hadn't heard from him, it became obvious that the emperor wasn't going to forgive him and recall him from exile. Tokuyo then began frequenting areas farther and farther from the city. She needed to learn what her father meant by Oki, but none of her friends could be trusted. They were too close to the emperor and had no problem throwing her under the proverbial carriage to climb just one rung on the ladder. Finally, she learned what it meant, or rather, what they meant, from a fisherman. Oh yeah, the Oki Islands, the fisherman said. Don't go there. And why not, asked Tokuyo. Uh, because you just don't. Many, many people have been sent to those islands to just disappear. They're out to the west, and if the storms and high waves don't get you, then the rocks will. And if the rocks don't get you, it will. Hey, wait a second. Why do you want to know? The fisherman asked. Oh, no reason, Tokuyo began. My father was just exiled there, and I'm going to go get him. If you don't mind, let's circle back to that ominous 
it you mentioned. That doesn't sound good. What's the deal with that? Well, uh, good luck, the fisherman said. This conversation is over, and when the emperor is having your fingernails pulled out for disobeying him, kindly leave my name out of all the screaming. Bye. With that, the fisherman rushed away from Tokayo, leaving the woman scared, but hopeful for the first time in months. It had been surprisingly difficult to sell their house and all their possessions, and even more difficult to secure passage westward to the small port town leading to the Oki Islands. Now that she knew more about the place, she knew how to phrase her questions in order to not arouse suspicion. The port to the Oki Islands was approximately 500 miles west of Edo, the capital. Tokoyo could travel cheaply, or she could travel safely, and since she had never left the capital, and this was early modern Japan, and she risked being murdered by a badger monster on the road alone, she opted for the latter and secured passage with a group traveling west. It would be slow, but it would be safe. It left in a few months, and it would give her enough time to sell everything they owned. She loved her father. After her mother died, he was all she had left in the world. She would live with him in exile, or she wouldn't live at all. There were some troubling rumors about the islands, though. Talk of something dark, something terrible and unnamed that haunted the waters around the islands. Tokyo waved it off as superstition. Besides, it had apparently been a destination of non-choice for political exiles for hundreds of years. Of course the emperor would want to cultivate an aura of danger around the place. Tokyo had set her mind on going there, to be with her father, and storms, monsters, and whatever dangers lurked on the mysterious islands could not deter her. No, 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 I'm not going there. No thanks, the 15th fisherman or merchant sailor said to Tokoyo when she arrived at the port town. She was on the road for weeks and had been in the town for nearly as long, begging any sailors who happened to pass through to take her to the Oki Islands, but they all refused. Just getting to the place was treacherous and, of course, no one wanted to face what lurked in the darkness of the surrounding deep. When Tokoyo wanted to follow up on that very prominent and very obvious point that everyone kept mentioning, the people were suddenly silent and had something better to do. Weeks and weeks passed, and it became obvious that no one would help. Travelers from near and far were terrified of the place. She had already traversed half of Japan to get here, but now she was stuck. Until she saw a little dilapidated dinghy for sale. Tokoyo haggled the merchant down so she could spend the rest of her money on the humble craft. He even threw in a crash course for helping the thing, and, ever the fast learner, Tokoyo picked it up quickly. The next morning, she tossed together a light pack full of her clothes and remaining food and left from the city, while all the fishermen looked on and shrugged. Well, they had warned her, but still, she had ventured out. That's where we entered the story today, with Tokoyo, days out from the town, huddled in the bottom of her tiny boat, freezing and out of food as she drifted in the pale moonlight. It had been three days since she had eaten and four days since she had slept. She knew she had to stay awake to keep the boat on course, but no matter how hard she tried, everyone had limits. Sleep finally took Tokoyo. Tokoyo was shivering and squinted in the sunlight. It was warm, and the sun was now high in the sky, which was a nice change from the freezing night. She sat up. Oh, and she was sinking. Her boat had crashed into sharp rocks, and it was now bumping against a cliff. 
She had awoke to find her face submerged and her body soaked with the cold salt water. Tokuyo scrambled in panic and immediately latched onto the rocky cliff. It was a long climb and the cliff face scraped and cut her hands until she found the edge and hefted herself over, panting on the soft grass. She had been saved from the sea, but she didn't know what she'd find. If this happened to be the Emperor's personal prison island, who knew what she would find here? That's when she felt it. Something annoyingly nudging her. Is she dead? Tokuyo heard from just a few feet away. I don't know, I just started poking her. Another closer voice said. Well, is she moving? Look, I know how to tell if someone's alive. Like I said, I just started poking her. Oh, no, she's, she's getting up, she's alive. Tokyo struggled to her knees and registered a nice little elderly couple. The old man had his cane raised above his shoulders, like a baseball bat. In that state, though, he looked to be more of a risk to himself than Tokoyo would have ever been. Tokoyo started to say something, but days without food or water at sea, and climbing a cliff face, finally caught up with her. She collapsed on the grass. A day or so later, she regained consciousness in a bed in the elderly couple's cottage. The pair had turned out to be nice, after all. The old man said he was a fisherman, and yes, Tokoyo had made it to the Oki Islands. The main one, in fact. Far from being a prison island or a place haunted by monsters, it was just the location of a quiet seaside village in a vast forest. Tokoyo, after about an hour of small talk, asked the couple about the emperor's exiles. Were those people on the island? Were they on this island or another one? The couple exchanged a glance, and then the man stood to close the window. The woman shook her head, but he said it anyway. Why are you asking about the emperor's exiles? The old man questioned in a low voice. Because my father's one of them, she said. That's what brought you all the way to this place, the woman said to no one in particular. Everyone on this island, we all know about the emperor's men, the elderly man said. We know about the ships that come in the middle of the night, and we know that there are parts of the island where we can't go. People who ask questions either quietly disappear or have accidents. So, over the years, we've learned to stop asking questions. In return, the emperor sends food and supplies to these rocks, and life can continue here. You're lucky you talked to us first, the woman added, looking at her husband. The quickest way to guarantee you never see your father again is to ask about him on this island. The emperor has people everywhere in the village, and this island is a vast and dangerous place. People are scared, and will turn you over to the emperor's men kill you themselves if they even think you're putting the village or the island in danger. Please, for your own sake and for all of us, do not ask. You can look. You're a smart person. You made it all the way here, but no one will help you if you ask. Tokoyo sat back. This was a bad development. She had made it this far, though, and concealed in the warning was a silver lining. That this was the island. This was the place where the emperor sent his exiles. Her father was here. She sighed and looked outside. She couldn't ask, but she could search, and search she would. Tokoyo was tired of searching. By now, she had spent weeks combing this island. She didn't have the money to buy supplies, so she could only go so far inland, into the dense forests, before she had to turn back and restock in the village. She was a curiosity at first, a beautiful young woman who just showed up in the village, talking to everyone, fishermen and merchants alike. 
on topics that bordered on dangerous. But soon, the people grew used to her presence. They gave her what they could, and she became just another villager. Tokoyo wrapped the deep cut on her arm, and already, it had started to dampen the strip of cloth. She had cut her arm on a jagged piece of wood, searching in the northeast of the island. She had divided the island up in her mind, and she was mentally checking off areas she had searched. It was difficult, however. She didn't even know what she was looking for. A secret compound? A cabin with a trapdoor that hid a prison? She didn't know. And after a few months, she realized that searching this one island would take years. But she had years, and she had vowed to see her father again. She would search until she died, if she had to. And there were days when that didn't seem so far off, and if she was being honest, where that didn't sound so bad. One night, Tokoyo was so hungry that she felt like fainting, and she staggered back to the village. She had two items left in her pack, crumbs of what little food she had found, and her family's ceremonial dagger. It was the one bit of her old life that she refused to sell, back in Edo. Her heart began to sink as she approached town. She had been too slow, and now it was nearly nightfall. There wouldn't be anywhere to get food. Still, she knew of another place. It was a bit of a longer walk, but they would have some rice, maybe vegetables, and a warm place to sleep, if only for tonight. After about an hour, she arrived knocking on the door of the temple that overlooked the sea. Hey, the Buddhist monk said when he answered. How's it going, stranger knocking on our door at night? Tokoyo told him her story, leaving out the parts about her father and the exile and all that. Okay, well, you don't seem like it, but I have to ask, are you or have you ever been a badger monster? Nope, Tokoyo replied. Okay, how about a corpse-eating demon, the monk asked going down the mental checklist. Mm-mm, nope, Tokoyo said, shaking her head. Okay, and the last one can be really tough. Really think back. Are you actually a rat goblin? Tokoyo thought about it for a moment and said, I can really confidently say that no, I am not a rat goblin. At least, not that I know of. Don't, just don't even joke about that, the monk said. Seriously, it is so dangerous being at a remote temple in this country. Weird stuff happens all the time. Just come inside. You seem cool, but we won't know if you weren't lying to us until you kill us in our sleep, the monk said, motioning Tokoyo to come inside. They gave her dinner, and that plain rice was the absolute best thing she had ever tasted, and she quickly ate three bowlfuls. While she sat there with the monk and his acolyte, she couldn't shake the feeling that she heard something just outside the window. It was soft, barely audible. She moved toward the window and held her breath. It wasn't a whimper, but a deep, anguished sobbing from far off in the distance. She strained out the window to see two women on the cliff, one older, one younger. The younger one was sobbing and putting on a white gown. Hey guys, what's going on down there? There's two women, an older one and a younger one with the younger one in a white gown and weeping. Yeah, Tokoyo replied, squinting into the distance. What's going on? It's the 15th already. That's, oh, that's right, you're not from here, the monk said. You know how a place can seem nice, yet it harbors a little bit of a dark secret? Well, we just do a teensy tiny bit of human sacrifice here on the island. What? Tokoyo screamed. We only do what we need, the monk defended. It's not excessive. Any human sacrifice is excessive, Tokoyo barked, grabbing her things 
before running off toward the two women standing on a cliff. The older woman was much larger and holding the younger one by the back of her neck, leading her toward the edge of the cliff. They were inches away when Tokuyo finally arrived, out of breath, screaming for them to stop. The older woman stopped pushing, but she still held on to the back of the younger girl's neck. Then, Tokuyo could see that both of their faces were streaked with tears. What's going on? She asked, softening slightly. Tokuyo learned the whole story. As was previously established, the waters surrounding the Oki Islands were dark and dangerous, and for years, they had always lost fishermen at sea. No one liked it, but it was the nature of the work. Then, about four years ago, they had a devastating season where they lost nearly half of the fishermen on the island. Another terrible season followed right after that. The village elders gathered and decided that something had to be done. They would all die if they didn't find a way to stop these accidents. They searched and thought and eventually lighted on a dark, ancient practice. Fearful of another lean and dangerous season, nearly everyone agreed. Even those who resisted were too scared to leave the island, so they reluctantly went along with the group. The first sacrifice was a young woman who was led up to the cliffs at night and pushed down into the sea below. That season was the best the inhabitants of the island had ever remembered, and the village had flourished. Everyone hated the practice, but if one young woman sacrificed to an unnamed sea god meant that the whole village could live on for another season, the practice would persist. Every few months, they led a woman up to the cliff and forced her to walk off. Tokuyo looked at the older woman. She was disgusted, but then Tokuyo asked the older woman why she was crying. The woman said that because taking someone's child and throwing that child off a cliff is a great way to have a lot of bitter, deeply hateful villagers, it was the child's own parents that had to draw lots. This was her own daughter. Tokuyo shook her head. Why not just not sacrifice a child to the sea? The woman shrugged. Someone had tried a couple years ago. The sea itself revealed the deception, and nearly as many fishermen and merchants were killed on the water as the season that had started the whole practice. The parent and child were killed anyway. They didn't know it was down there haunting the waters, but it was something. The mother sighed. It was getting late. She had to get back to the village, or else they would suspect something. She stifled some sobs and resumed pushing her daughter toward the edge of the cliff. Stop, Tokyo commanded, but the woman didn't. She just repeated that this had to be done. I know, and it will be done, Tokyo said. The young woman did not deserve to be thrown into the sea. In this family, Tokoyo accepted that she would probably never find her father. But here, here was another family that she could save. Tokoyo's life was as good as lost. She was destitute on a cursed island, and her father was gone. I'll go in her place, Tokoyo said, staring at the ground. The mother stopped pushing her daughter toward the edge and stood there dumbfounded before pulling at the white gown her daughter was wearing, telling her to get it off and get out of here before Tokoyo changed her mind. Tokoyo said she wouldn't change her mind and grabbed the ceremonial white gown. She walked over to the tree and slung her pack over it. The mother and daughter watched in amazement as Tokoyo drew a single item from her pack, saying that she'd leave the pack there for when she returned. With that, she turned to the sea with her family's ceremonial dagger in hand. What? Did they think she was just going to give up and sacrifice herself to a monster without a fight? No, she was going to go into the water 
but she wasn't going to make it easy for whatever lurked within. With the dagger secured between her teeth, Tokuya walked steadily off the edge of the cliff, nodded, and dove off, down into the water. Tokuya will discover what lurks in the water, as well as have an opportunity for some light graffiti. But that will be right after this. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right, now back to the show. The moonlight filtered through the choppy, murky water of the rocky coast as Tokyo hit the surface feet first. She slowed until she was about 20 feet underwater. Before she could swim to the surface and take a breath, something caught her eye, something glinting in the dark waters. She dove deeper. It was sheer luck that she found the cave when she did, nearly out of breath. She pulled herself in and up, gasping. Then, she saw it. Sitting there, in the cave, was a defaced and discarded statue of the emperor. It was the same man who exiled her father. She had never seen him in person, but the statue made him look strong and powerful, though he had been sick for years. Here, standing before his image with a knife, she considered adding to the defacement. This guy had exiled her father for daring to imply that, after a decade of illness, perhaps an heir should be named, you know, to safeguard the future of the Empire. As she held the knife, she knew the Emperor deserved every bit of defacement, but something stopped her. She chuckled to herself as she began the swim back to the surface. One of the superstitious villagers probably saw the face of the Emperor while out diving and thought it was a water monster. Then, after a particularly bad season, the villagers looked for a solution. There was no monster. Togo, swimming to the surface and smiling to herself about how quaint and ridiculous the villagers could be to believe in a water monster, missed the glowing eyes, each one as big as she was, opening behind her in the darkness of the sea. Like that water level in Super Mario 64 that terrified nine-year-old me, there was a monster lurking in the darkness of the water. It lived in a massive winding cave that stretched underneath the island, and it just saw its most recent sacrifice. Tokyo heard something scraping the rocks behind her, and had just a half second to spin around in the water to see the glowing yellow eyes illuminating the caves and the teeth. As it shot out from the cave, Tokyo realized that she couldn't go anywhere. She wasn't fast enough to escape the sea monster in its natural habitat. The best she could do was stand and fight swim and fight. The monster slithered from its cave and surrounded Tokoyo, 
coiling and filling the water around her. It liked to play with its victims, to block their way out of the water, slowly drowning and filling them with terror. Just as they were about to lose consciousness, the monster finally ate them. It smacked Tokoyo, but didn't think that she would be different. So it didn't notice the knife until the knife was buried deep in its side. Compared to the incredible size of the monster, a small dagger wound would be like us getting a really intense paper cut, complete with a surprise factor and all. But as the monster made its getaway, it dragged its body along the dagger, flaying open an extended length of its side. In seconds, Tokoyo was free from the monster and the surrounding water was cloudy with its blood. Tokoyo began to panic. She had to make her escape now. But looking frantically in all directions, Tokoyo found no open route. The monster's massive, serpentine body was seemingly everywhere, and she could see, amid the blood, that it was still searching for her. That was when she realized something. She could see its glowing eyes. She could see its eyes, but as far as she could tell, it couldn't see her. Securing her knife in her mouth again, Tokoyo swam as fast as she could toward the thing's face. Time to say hello. The monster hunted and hunted for her through the water made inky with its blood. At last, it spied her. And she was the last thing it saw out of that eye. Tokoyo hoped that the eye stuff was as painful as it was gory, or else this would have been a massive miscalculation. She was right, and the thing, now blind in one eye, fled. It had already lost one eye to this now inaccurately named sacrifice. It wasn't about to lose anything else. It shot off back towards its home, and missed. It slammed into the rock on the edge of the cave. And, eye socket streaming blood, it was beside itself with terror. It was half blind, and now it couldn't get home. Tokoyo could see that she had the thing on the run, and she would be able to flee. She looked to the surface of the water, to the moonlight distorted in the waves above. She could return to the island, stow away on the next ship out, make her way back to Ito, and have a life. But she thought about the dozens of young women who had been fed to this monster, and countless others, who would lose their lives if she left. It was dangerous, but she had to do it. Her family's ceremonial knife between her teeth, she dove back down, to where the creature remained slamming and scraping its face on the rock, trying to find the opening to its home. Tokoyo swam deeper, underneath the body that stretched on into the darkness of the sea, and plunged her knife upward, onto its unprotected belly. In the same way as some of the other dragons in this podcast, if this monster would have just stayed still, it probably would have been fine. The knife was small, though I've never experienced it. I can imagine it's probably pretty difficult to not immediately react if someone stabs a knife in your stomach. The monster gave up trying to find home and just decided to flee into the ocean to get away from this small, horrible creature. It had only wanted to fill her with terror and murder her without a fight. Was that really too much to ask? As it fled, Tokoyo and the knife stayed in place, slicing its underbelly from head to tail. She didn't have time to wait and see if she had killed it, though the organs dropping out into the cloudy, bloody haze were a pretty good indication that everything was over. She burst through the surface of the water and gasped for air. Spinning around, she found the cliff and saw the woman and her daughter, the intended sacrifice, still making their way down to the village. Hey, I need help with something, she yelled up to the mother and daughter. Well, you, you were just sacrificed to an ancient sea god, so yeah, understatement, the mother yelled back. Oh no, 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 not that, 
Tokoyo said, as the sea monster's body floated to the surface behind her. I took care of that. The pair rushed to the village to get some ropes and share the news, and a crowd followed them back to the water's edge. Upon their return, Tokoyo dove beneath the surface and disappeared for almost a minute. She bobbed another time for a new breath and then disappeared again. She did this several more times until they saw a stone head slowly emerge from the water. Those on land were confused. What was the statue of the emperor doing down there? When the mother and daughter stopped by the village, they told everyone that the stranger, the beggar girl who lived in the streets, had done it. She had killed the monster in the water. Several strong people dragged the sea monster's remains to shore, and everyone celebrated. They told Tokyo that her story would live on for generations. She had saved them all. She saw an opportunity here. She had saved the island. She turned to the group closest to her and told them about her father and asked them where the emperor kept the exiles here on the island. The crowd hunter grew still, with only a few offering vague details like to the north and deep in the forest. Hushed whispers spread around the crowd. And several minutes later, Tokoyo felt a tap on her shoulder. Hi, we need to go. The old man, the one who had taken her in when she had first arrived on the island, said, but why? They were celebrating. Besides, she was about to find out where her father was. No, you aren't, the old man hissed, pointing toward the crowd. That's when Tokoyo saw several serious faces with their eyes locked on her, slowly making their way through the crowd, the emperor's men. She had made a huge mistake. Look, I, I know where he is. Come with me, quickly, the old man said. And Tokoyo followed, dipping into the crowd and away from the men. The old man had a carriage waiting for them on the edge of town, and they had disappeared before the emperor's men made their way through the villagers. Within minutes, they were speeding off to the north and through the forest. I'm sorry I couldn't tell you earlier, the old man said to Tokoyo. He knew where her father was the whole time. He once been a landowner on the island, and he knew it well. The exiles were kept in a village to the north. She could get there, rescue her father, and be on the first boat out of here. It was the least he could do. He had lived on this island his whole life, and the monster had devastated the village, forcing the people to destroy the future to preserve the present. Now, though, they could flourish. People wouldn't be afraid of having children. They wouldn't do everything they could to leave. She had given them a life and a future, and even though the old man would be executed if his role in this was ever discovered, it was the least he could do. At last, they arrived at the village, where they held the exiles, and the old man helped Tokoyo navigate her way around the patrols. Your father's down here, he said, motioning to a path that led underground. From what I hear, the emperor wanted a little extra attention given to him. Tokoyo shuddered as she'd passed several locked rooms until one, at the end of the hall, stood open. He's right through there, the old man said with a smile. Tokoyo welled with excitement. This was it. She had worked for years, risked death, dismemberment, and been utterly destitute. But she had made it. She and her father would be leaving this horrible place together. Tonight, Tokoyo rushed through the door to find an empty cell. As she searched it, she heard, Now, what was it I said when I first talked to you? 
the elderly man said to Tokoyo, standing just outside the door. It's okay if you don't remember, he said. You have had an eventful past couple of months. It was this. The emperor has men everywhere. The old man sighed and continued. And I meant everywhere. I told you not to mention your father's name. And now I need to be the one to imprison you. You should never have mentioned his name. Tokoyo realized a moment too late. The old man was not helping her. He was one of them. He was one of the emperor's men. He had tricked her. She lunged toward his silhouette in the doorway, reaching with all her might to catch the door. But the old man stood just beyond the doorframe, just out of reach. The door slammed in her face, and Tokoyo sprawled backwards onto the ground. She reached for her pack and the knife, but remembered that she had set it down in town right before the old man urged her to come with him. I'm truly, truly sorry, the man said on the other side of the door, but you shouldn't have asked about him. You put the whole island in danger. We'll send word to the emperor's court, and I'll expect that they'll want you to be executed for your crimes. I'll try to make it a quick death when it comes in exchange for you killing this monster. Goodbye, Tokoyo. She listened in anguish as footsteps slowly grew quieter and quieter as he left her alone in the cell. Tokoyo tried to escape, but as far as she could tell, the impenetrable stone walls were surrounded by feet of packed dirt, the impregnable door being the only exit. People came by once a day to drop food through a slot. She tried everything, from the sick prisoner routine, to hiding in a corner and pretending like the room was empty after an escape, to a solid day of kicking the door, to see if it would budge. But nothing helped. She couldn't get anyone to do anything other than just tell her to quiet down. Tokoyo began to despair. She was going to be executed here, and she would just have to accept that. It had been a few weeks at this point, and if the old man had traveled to Edo and back with the orders from the emperor, then she had only a few more days until he returned to have her killed. She was off by a few days and realized such at the surprise of hearing the latch on the other side of the door turn. When it opened, she saw the old man flanked by samurai. Stealing herself for one last fight, Tokoyo clenched her fists and gritted her teeth. She knew she couldn't take on two armed samurai, but she would rather die like this than a criminal. Yeah, you're free to go the old man said, stopping her mental pump-up session hard. It took her a few seconds to understand. You should probably have a seat, the old man said, then looked around. Oh, right. I'm gonna put you in a cell without any chairs. Okay, come with me. Tokoyo sat down to some tea with the old man, not completely sure this wasn't a trick, but he seemed contrite. Before I get to why you're not dying today, let me just say that all I did was in service to my emperor and my home. You put all that in danger by coming here. It's okay now, only because you got extremely lucky. By killing the monster, she said, that wasn't luck. That was me being, no, no, the old man said, interrupting her. The emperor doesn't care about this, then he stopped himself. The emperor cares about all of his people, but your release here has nothing to do with you killing the monster. It was what you did afterwards. You dragged the image of the emperor from the depths, and the people restored it while you were in prison, returning it to a place of honor in the middle of town. There's a belief among our people that to curse an image of someone 
is similar to cursing that person themselves. So when someone, likely an exile who made it to town, defaced an image of the emperor, cursed it and threw it into the sea, it could have an actual impact on the emperor. The emperor, it seems, made a full recovery from his illness, timed to the day to when you pulled that statue from the water. I found him in better health than I had ever seen him, and when I informed him of what you had done, throwing the statue detail in as simply that, a detail, the emperor latched on, and that was what he heard. So, yeah, you've been not just released, but he's having you and your father recalled to Edo. Your father is to be reinstated, and you're both going to be given high honors. Tokoyo sat stunned for a few moments. That was... Huh. Yeah, you're telling me, the old man said. He also told her that, for what it was worth, he didn't want to execute her. Though he was the emperor's leading man here, this island had been his home his whole life, and she had saved it. He would make sure her story would be told for generations, and he would do everything in his power to make sure that she was never forgotten. Tokoyo thanked the man as the sound of footsteps approached the door. Turning around, she saw her father. He was standing there only a little worse for wear. After spending so much time in exile, the pair looked at each other and embraced. Both thought they had seen the last of the other, and Tokoyo had accepted death before never seeing him again. Now, though, her quest was complete. Her father was alive, and he could come home because of her. The old man did his part, and I like to think that we're still talking about Tokoyo today because of him trying to make amends betraying her. The emperor wasn't joking about his high honors and renamed the city of Edo for the young woman who had saved him. It would henceforth be known as Tokyo. Okay, before I get 1,000 angry emails, I'm 99.999% sure that that is not the origin of the name Tokyo. I read that ending to the story from a pretty dubious looking source. The name Tokyo means East Capital, and Edo was renamed in the late 1800s, a long time after the story takes place. So yeah, definitely not the source of the name Tokyo, but it's a fun idea. Also, the Oki Islands are real islands. Aside from being rocky, they aren't all that mysterious or dangerous, but they were a place where emperors sent prominent exiles over the years. Next week, we're continuing in Japanese folklore, because these stories were just too good to pass up. On the main feed, it's the story of a man who isn't so greedy as to want to live forever. But would living five or six hundred years in perfect health really be that much to ask? Spoiler alert, yes, yes it would be too much to ask. Then, if you're a Myths and Legends member, it's the story of a young girl who gets a magical object from her mother. I want to say thanks to Millie Casey, Brian E.J., Foo Fighters Dan, Candy J.B., Flip Guy, Lily Y.X., Tom584 question mark ampersand 7, Ice Weasel, Abrason, Bedroma, Alex D1, Zero Brown, Rexephorus, TTA, Tomas T321, Awake Benji, Ding Dong 10, and Mad Lad Octopus Emoji for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so, so much. It really does help the show. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a mini USB drive that comes out of a regular USB drive, like a little USB tongue, meaning it's a USB drive in your USB drive so you can save to your USB drive while you save to your USB drive, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show. 
Full disclosure, I was trying to decide between that Pimp My Ride reference and an alien reference because that mini USB drive totally looks like the alien that comes out of the other alien's mouth. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this time is the skunk ape from Florida in the United States. The skunk ape is like Bigfoot, but stinky. I mean, we haven't covered Bigfoot, but I can imagine Bigfoot is not an especially hygienic individual. Well, that just goes to show you how ridiculously stinky the skunk ape is. Also, its name is skunk ape. The history isn't a long one. Sightings have been reported all around southern Florida of a large, stinky, ape-like creature. Possible explanations include actual stinky apes, black bears, and, my personal pet theory, stinky hairy bearded guys. I mean, Florida gets pretty hot, and it seems totally possible that a hairy guy in the 70s forgot to put on some deodorant one day, and a legend was born. In the year 2000, a woman anonymously mailed two pictures of an ape that showed up in her backyard in Sarasota, Florida. The ape apparently showed up on three different nights to take apples off her back porch. One obvious way to keep Stinky Bigfoot from stopping by your house at night? Don't leave apples out for Stinky Bigfoot. The two pictures have been online for years, and I posted them on MythPodcast.com. The photos were either taken in downtown Sarasota or along the Mayaka River, though we don't really know. The woman remains anonymous. Even though it stands eight feet tall, with large teeth and eyes that glow in the night, there are no known instances of it attacking humans. Its smell is described as equivalent to rotting cabbages, and there's some speculation that it rolls on the bodies of dead animals, so that it radiates such a strong odor that humans have no choice but to flee in disgust before it even gets close. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Carvana for sponsoring us this week. Looking to unsuck the experience of going to the car dealership? Then Carvana can help. With Carvana, you can browse, buy, trade in, and finance your next vehicle online from the comfort of your home. Choose as soon as the next day delivery or pick up your vehicle from the world's first coin-operated car vending machine and wave bye-bye to buyer's remorse with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Go to Carvana.com legends, that's L-E-G-E-N-D-S, for the new way to buy a car. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.